So we're in Luke chapter 19. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 19, I do realize it's a bit warm in here. Um, For those of you visiting, you may have or may not realize that this isn't the normal room we meet in. We usually meet in the atrium, uh, but uh, they had an orchestra booked before us, so we missed out. So that's normally where we are is an atrium. We'll be back there next week. Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verse 1 through verse, make sure I got it right, 27. I was right. And I want to read, just to begin with, before we pray again, verses 9 through 11. And then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God would appear uh, immediately. And Father, we pray that as we get into your word together, Lord, that we would understand what it is you were wanting to tell the first people who heard this, what it is that you're wanting to speak through Luke and what was originally written. And we pray, Father, that we would know how this applies to us today. We pray, Father, that you would remind us that you're the one who sought us out and saved us. And Lord, for anyone here who doesn't know you yet, we pray, Lord, that they would have a sense that your Holy Spirit is seeking after them and they would surrender to you and receive the salvation that you paid for. And we pray as well, Father, that you would work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that desire to partner with you in the gospel, to take the gospel that you've given to us that's changing our lives and to take it wherever we can. Please, Father, we pray you would do this by your Holy Spirit, for your glory, in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen, amen. Amen. All right, got the timer on so I don't kill anybody. Last week, uh, I guess the Sunday school teachers were saying, oh, we're not ready, it's over so quickly. And they all realized, oh, it's because John isn't here. Luke chapter 19. So as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, we're seeing this, aren't we? We've seen this since about the, the end of chapter 9 in Luke's gospel. Jesus is getting closer to Jerusalem, and the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more anticipation is building up. That, that people are excited that he could indeed be God's chosen king. And if he is God's chosen king, that means the kingdom's coming. And so as they get right before Jerusalem, in fact, in chapter 19, we'll see next week that he arrives in Jerusalem. And the last several chapters of Luke are just that final week of Jesus' life, what we call the Passion Week. But as he gets to Jerusalem and that anticipation is growing, people are beginning to wonder, is the kingdom going to come now? Are we finally going to be delivered from the Roman oppression? Are we going to finally enter into that time where God's kingdom comes and we enter into this eternal prosperity? Is it here? Is it coming? And so as we get closer, Jesus wants to clarify what they can expect life in the kingdom to be like, specifically in between his first and his second coming. And and for us, especially any of us who are familiar with the Bible or have been around church for a while, the idea of Jesus coming once and then coming again, that's kind of old hat. We know this. We kind of think this way. But this isn't how the first century Jews who were expecting God to send his Messiah, this is how they would have thought. 
They would have been waiting for the kingdom to come and come in power, come in probably military deliverance by a warrior king. They were thinking this is what was going to happen. And because it wasn't happening that way, they, they, they were kind of wondering what's going on. Jesus certainly showed that he had the power to be this military conqueror. But yet he's saying more and more how this is not what they can expect. In fact, I think you guys saw last week where Jesus again predicts that he must suffer many things in Jerusalem and die and the third day rise again. And so what we do is we, we, we see here is in Jericho, we saw this a little bit last week, uh, Ben did a great job of, of tying all these things together and he rightly said, Ben rightly said last week, that really from the section that he began in earlier in, in, in chapter 18 through really the section I'm going through in chapter 19 is really just one account there's a parallel that will kind of bring something out with the rich young ruler that you heard about last week who, who Jesus says, sell you have and give to the poor and come follow me. And he goes away sad because he's really rich and he doesn't want to give up the dough. And this guy Nicodemus that we'll talk about, not Nicodemus, sorry, uh, Zacchaeus that we'll talk about in just a minute. There's, there's parallels there in their lives and yet radically different responses to who Jesus is. But really, this also ties in, this account with Zacchaeus, ties in to this parable that Jesus is going to tell of the ten minas. As, as we'll see when we get to the parable, these, these ideas of, of these minas are really about three months' wages. They point to something different than a parable that might seem the same from Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Minas and talents are both bits of money, but the mina is different than the talent, and we'll talk about why when we get to it. It really is connected to this idea of seeking and saving the lost. So I really want to just kind of focus on two main things about Jesus, and it's always about Jesus. So two main things that we take away about Jesus. The first one is, we're going to see with Zacchaeus' story, is that Jesus pursues unwanted sinners. In verse 1, it says, Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. His name means pure, by the way, or righteous. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, here's what's interesting. We know, don't we? We've talked about this before in Luke's Gospel, that tax collectors were despised. They're not too popular now, actually. But they were despised back then. And they were despised because of why? The way they got their money was by taxing more than needed to be taxed. They were able to take, kind of scrape off the top. Well, Zacchaeus 1 is in Jericho, a, a key trade city in the area. So a very wealthy city. And he's not just a tax collector, he's the chief tax collector, which means he could take off, all the, off the top what everyone else was collecting. And when it says he was rich, it's wanting us to see, Luke's wanting us to see, this guy was wealthy off the backs of poor people. This guy was wealthy because he was exploiting a system that, would, that he was allowed to exploit to make himself wealthy. you got to see this. It's beautiful that how, how, how Jesus deals with Zacchaeus, but if you don't see not just how despised he was, but how despicable he was, you're not going to get what's going on. Zacchaeus definitely was this guy who was a wretch. He definitely was somebody who was corrupt. And it says, though, in verse 3, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Probably heard the rumors. 
saw the crowds beginning to form. It says, verse 3, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was of small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, now, it wouldn't be that big a deal. If you guys saw me running and you saw me kind of climbing a tree, you might think, John's a bit nutty, but not too surprising. But you'd also probably think, ooh, what's he trying to see? But in this day, when a man, a mature man, a mature Jewish man ran, people would go, what is wrong? Something bad's going on. That is completely just uncouth. Mature men don't run. They walk. They sachet to where they're going. They don't run. But he didn't just run. He climbs a tree. Now, now the thing is, he climbs a tree because he's short. Now, I can't relate to shortness. I'm six foot, almost six foot two. So I don't know what it's like to be short, okay? But I still can relate to Zacchaeus in this. I know what it's like to feel very small, especially in a crowd. I know what it's like to be in a place where I'm going, I can't see what I'm meant to see because all I can see is the people around me. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt that way? Where you're in a place and you just, there's something you want to see, but all you can really see around you is the other people. You're almost blinded by the crowd around you. And here's the other thing about Zacchaeus. I, I, I have not made lots of money off the back of poor people. I've not really made lots of money by a Western standard at all. But I've not made lots of money off the backs of poor people. I've never exploited poor people that I can remember. I've done a lot of bad things, so maybe I can't remember. But I can't remember ever exploiting poor people for money. But I'll tell you, I've, I've done enough corrupt things to know that like Zacchaeus, I deserve to be despised. And so what's really amazing to me about this is, is what would be working in Zacchaeus that he would think as a despicable tax collector, as a chief tax collector, as one who's actually betraying his own people, the Jews, and even the most vulnerable people within his own people, the poor Jews, how, how, what would make him think that Jesus would want to even be seen by him, this rabbi who is rumored to be the Messiah. Well, this is the thing that I want you to get, because it's something that we need to understand when it comes to our salvation, that when it comes to us knowing God, it's always God who initiates it, always. Now, I know some of you guys have some pretty amazing stories of how you came to faith. I have a fairly dramatic story myself. In fact, in my dramatic story, uh, I, there was really nobody sharing Jesus with me. I knew some Christian guys, and, and, and they were, to be honest, they were all really nerdy, so I just made fun of them. I knew some Christian girls, and they were pretty cute, so I tried to go out with them. But I really didn't have anybody sharing Jesus with me. I actually started dating one of these Christian girls, and she was a very nominal Christian. Shouldn't have gone out with me, that's for sure. But even she wouldn't actually share Jesus. The closest thing to it was she asked me once when I was, yeah, I was 17, 18, she asked me, uh, so, so you know, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? And I said, well, I'm going to go to heaven. And she says, why would you go to heaven? I'm like, because I'm cool. And at least I was wise enough to know there's no party in hell. The party would be in heaven. But I thought, I'm a good guy. I'm going to go to heaven. And she just kind of shook her head and laughed. And I thought, that's weird. Why wouldn't she assume I'll be going to heaven. And so this is as far as is kind of 
witnessing to me went. There wasn't a whole lot there. But I have to say, I was asking these big questions about life. Why am I here? Why do I exist? Where's the real meaning? I had a real problem with authority, which I now realize now was just because I'm a sinner like the rest of us. But I felt like part of my problem with authority was, what gives that person the right to tell me what to do? Who gets to say what's right or wrong anyway? All these things were spinning in my head, especially if I was messing with substances. And so nobody's sharing with me. And then I have this really profound experience where I make a long story, a really long story, really short. I came to this, this, this realization that I'm a sinner before this God. That the reason I feel guilty about some of the stuff I do, because no one's telling me what I'm doing is wrong, really. The reason I'm feeling so guilty about the stuff that I'm doing is because I am guilty. It's, it, I had what I would call an epiphany where I just knew. And a couple days later, I, I, I went to church with that, that nominal girlfriend and heard someone present a clear presentation of who Jesus is and what he did for us and why we need to trust and follow him. And God saved me. So I have to say, the reason I'm saying this is because it wasn't my seeking and wrestling that I was asking these big questions. That seeking and wrestling was really an indicator that God was seeking after me. Now, I had a choice to make. Don't get me wrong. I had, I had to choose to respond to what God was doing. Don't get me wrong. But God was initiating. God was seeking me. And I hope we see in this story with Zacchaeus that Jesus is seeking after Zacchaeus. Even though Zacchaeus is seeking to know who's this Jesus. So what happens in verse 5? Zacchaeus is in the tree, Jesus is walking by, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now I wonder if Zacchaeus was feeling humiliated when this happened, or just shocked. But I'll tell you, whatever he was feeling, when this happened, look at how he responded. It says in verse 6, and Zacchaeus I'm sorry, so he hurried, Zacchaeus hurried and came down. Notice how Luke uses the exact words. It's the same, same phrase in English, same phrase in the original language in Greek. Jesus says, hurry and come down. He hurries and comes down and it says, and received him joyfully. Even in the invitation, listen to me, even in the invitation, there was something about Jesus' invitation to Zacchaeus that Zacchaeus thinks, wow, there's hope. That I might be despicable, but even for someone as despicable as me, there is hope. If he wants to come to my house, that was a sign. If someone in authority said, I'm coming to your house, it was a sign of approval or acceptance. He wants me. See, don't, don't miss this as well. It's Jesus who invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. We're going to kind of circle back to that at the very end. Verse 7. Then it says, and when he, they saw it, they all grumbled. That is the crowd. He was all excited about the blind man being healed. All excited about the power miracles that Jesus can do. But when they see him loving and reaching out to this despicable sinner, this unwanted sinner, they all grumble. And here's what they said. He's gone into, uh, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
Now, we don't know the timing of all this. We don't know what happens in verses 8 and uh, in verse 8, if, if what Zacchaeus is going to say in a minute. We don't know if this happens after he's had supper or he happens because he hears the grumbling. Remember the scene, too, in, in these dinners. We've talked about these dinners that Jesus would be invited to before, that they'd often happen in these big outside courtyards. And when noble people or, or important people were invited to a meal, uh, especially a meal where they were going to communicate and teach, only honorable people were invited in to eat the meal, but the common people could sit outside outside the courtyard and listen to the conversations. So maybe as he goes into the house and they lay out the food, that this is where the grumbling, you hear the grumbling kind of raising its tone. But somehow during this dinner or after this dinner, after this time with Jesus, after Zacchaeus spends time with the Jesus who invites himself into his house, into his life, what does it say, verse 8? Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, it's interesting because it's kind of a hard thing to translate because it might be that he's saying, I've already been doing this. But the, the context would seem more of, no, he's going to begin to do this. He's going to begin to be generous and give to the poor. And he says, and if I, have, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which is obvious, I will restore it fourfold. Now, now here's what's going on. Zacchaeus is coming to faith that Jesus is God's chosen king. And he's coming to that faith, listen, not because of the miracles done, but because of the mercy shown. That's why he's coming to faith. He's believing that, that, that this Jesus is, is, has the very character of the covenant God that he's been betraying as he's been ripping off the poor to get rich. You guys all know the song Amazing Grace, right? How many of you guys have heard the testimony of John Newton who wrote that song? Most of you guys know the testimony. For a few of you who may not know the testimony, John Newton was a captain of a slave ship. He actually treated people like merchandise and sold them as slaves. And so when he's converted, when he knows that, 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 that God and God alone has the mercy and the compassion and the grace and the power to save him, when he realizes this, it, it changes him so radically that not only does he not, not only does he not continue to, to sell slaves, but he, 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 he sets off with other people like William Wilberforce to, to, dis, to dismantle the whole slave trade. And he, he writes a song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You see, this is what's going on with Zacchaeus. In a very joyful way, in a very concrete way, in a very visible way, he's demonstrating his faith by generous repentance. What was his sin? Greed, selfishness, exploitation. What was his repentance? Generosity, humility. It's interesting the text doesn't give us any indication that he stopped being a tax collector, but maybe he was one of the first tax collectors uh, in history that was actually just in doing it. But he goes on to say, look at verse 9. Jesus says to him, today 
Notice, salvation has come to this house. What did Jesus say to Zacchaeus earlier? Remember? What did he say? Today I must go to where? Your house. Now what's he saying? Today salvation has come to this house. He's salvation. He's not just saying salvation is because he's repented. He's basically saying salvation's come because I've come and he's trusted me and it's been demonstrated in this repentance. Now we've got to understand because this is the gospel that, that the Bible brings forth. This is the gospel that the first Jesus followers preached. This is the good news. Listen how Paul describes it in Acts chapter 20. Paul says in his own testimony of his own gospel preaching, he says, I, do not, I did not shrink from declaring to any to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and Greeks of, notice, repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now these are two sides of the same coin. To believe in Jesus is to believe that he and he alone has the power and the compassion and the mercy and the grace to save a wretch like you or me. But it also means to turn to him in faith, whereby we're turning away from the things that are sinful. We're turning away from the things we've been neglecting, the good things, the pursuit of justice and mercy, being devoted and actually loving God. We're turning away from that neglect and turning to loving God. We're turning away from those false gods we worship. Greed, sexuality, power, self. And we're turning to him. See, listen, you need to understand something. When I say Jesus pursues unwanted sinners, I don't care if people know or think of you as a wretch. It doesn't matter. Because here's the deal. Maybe your wretchedness is known, but all of us are wretched. Hey, maybe your wretchedness is hidden, but it's not hidden from God. And Jesus pursues us and calls us to trust him. And part of trusting him is turning from our sin and following him. God, I want to follow after you. Now, this is really important to see what's going on, how Jesus saves Zacchaeus, because how Jesus saves Zacchaeus is how Jesus saves us. Now, we know, okay, I know. I know you're going, wait a second, John. This is Luke 19. Jesus doesn't get crucified for another couple chapters. So doesn't Jesus save us through his death and resurrection? That's how he pays for our salvation. But he saves us by pursuing us, by revealing to us his mercy and his compassion. Often, listen, he does that through us. And we're going to talk about this. But he reveals himself to us. And we know I need to turn to him. I need to trust Jesus. And I love the fact that Zacchaeus does this with overwhelming joy. Now, now the reason this is important to you first understand is because when we get into the parable, if you don't know what I mean by the gospel, if you don't understand, if you don't recognize in Zacchaeus' story your own story, your own salvation story, if you don't recognize in Zacchaeus' wretchedness your own wretchedness, if you don't recognize in, in Zacchaeus' hearing an invitation, your own response to hearing an invitation of Jesus. If you don't recognize the, the, the joy and the sense of, man, I want to change that comes from when you know the God who brings perfect and eternal change. If that doesn't echo 
with you, if that doesn't resonate with you, then what happens in this parable isn't going to make any sense. And so really before we go into the parable, I've got to ask you a question. Do you know this Jesus? And I, and I mean this. I, I'm not saying this to, because I'm, I'm looking around going, oh, you do, or you don't, or you, I, I don't know. But God knows. And I think you know. I think you know if you know God or not. I think you know if you know Jesus or not. Maybe this is your sycamore tree. Interesting, the, the, the sycamore is a sycamore fig, and it was a particular kind of fig tree that they, was planted all over the place, and the figs weren't very nice. They're either a little bit bitter or just totally flavorless, and they're really kind of uh, fibrous. They're not nice, but they are edible. They won't hurt you. And so the sycamore tree was the place, the sycamore fig tree was the place where you got figs if you're really poor because they were free. You could just kind of harvest them yourself. So in a sense, this rich man climbing into a poor man's tree is saying, I don't care who I have to be connected to as long as I can see Jesus. What about you? You're here this morning. Maybe this is you kind of going, okay, we'll check out this Jesus stuff. We'll see these church people. I heard the guy's American. I'll try not to hold it against him. And we'll see, we'll see about this Jesus stuff. You need to know if you're here, it's because Jesus is seeking you. So then as he does this, and I, and I can imagine that as Jesus does this, and as he makes the statement, today salvation has come to the house, and he says in verse 10, this is probably the key verse for all of Luke's gospel, for the Son of Man, he's definitely calling himself Messiah there. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That they're kind of going, what? Salvation looks like a wretched tax collector coming to faith and repentance? What? When's the, when are the Romans going to be shut down? When are we going to see prosperity come? And so it says in verse 11, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God would, was to appear immediately. So he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Now, this is Jesus telling a parable. Remember when there's a, Jesus tells parables, he's trying to make one big point. So we've got to be careful not to push the subpoints too hard, but he's making one big point. But this parable that he's, that he's telling here of, a, of an unwanted king, it gives allusions to something historical that, that the audience would have known. So some 25 or 30 years before this time that Jesus is saying this, the, the, the ruler over Judea was a man named Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, over Judea, remember, this is a Roman province. It's not under the control of the Jews. But Herod is kind of half Jew. And so he's kind of ruling over them. He even had the, the, the rule, the name king. And when Herod gets ready to die, when he's about to die, he 
understandably, passes on the kingdom to his son. See if I pronounce his, his name right. Uh, Archelaus. So he passes his son, the kingdom to the Archelaus. But here's the thing. Archelaus has to go to Rome to ratify this. He's got to go to Rome and ask the Caesar, my father's died, he's going to give me the kingdom. Is that still cool with you? So when Archelaus in around 4 BC goes to Caesar and says, hey, is it okay if I have this throne? Caesar says, yes. But what happens is there's a group of Jews that follow him and go before Caesar and say, we don't want this guy to reign. I didn't vote for Trump, they say. We don't want this guy to reign. And so what happens? I didn't vote for Trump either, by the way, just so you know. So what happens? In this parable, they say, we don't want this man to reign over us. Now, what's going on here, and it's important that we recognize uh, how Jesus describes us. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. He's both alluding to this historical event and pointing forward to what he would do through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? So he's beginning to hint more and more that there's going to be this, there's going to be two comings of the Messiah. Now what happens next? Verse 15. It says, and when he returned, oh, I forgot to say, yeah, well, I'll get to that. He says, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now, it's important we recognize that what happens in this parable, the king gives each servant an equal amount, one mina, about three months' salary. Whereas the parable of the talents in verse, in chapter 25 of Matthew, in that, in that parable, each person gets a different amount. In the parable of the minas, we're going to see each person starts with the same amount but gets a different reward. In the parable of the talents, each person starts with a different amount but gets the same reward. See, these are two different parables. It's really important we see this. And so what happens? He gives these guys, listen, an equal amount, but he rewards them individually. What happens? Verse 16. The first came before him and said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Man, I want that guy to be my investment guy. That's a thousand percent increase. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little you shall have authority over how many? Ten cities. And the second came, Lord, your mina has made five minas. That's still pretty good, man. 500% increase. And he said to him, are you, uh, and, and you are to be over how many? Five cities. So the lesson that Jesus is wanting to show here, listen, he's wanting to make sure that, that, that his audience understands, listen, you've been given the same thing but what you do with that thing will determine the rewards you get when the king returns. Are you guys following me? That thing is the gospel. The mina represents the gospel. This good news about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. What happened to Zacchaeus is the gospel. This is how Jesus seeks and saves. Each of us who knows Jesus has been given this, and God says, you got something to do with it now. It's time to invest it. And it's important because what we do with the gospel, listen, 
it demonstrates about it demonstrates what we understand about the gospel. More importantly, it demonstrates what we understand about the God who seeks and saves. This, this is the Great Commission. You guys all know this. You've been in church twice. You've probably heard this. Matthew chapter 28 says, and the, speaking of the resurrected Jesus, he comes to the disciples and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission. He gives it to the 12 and says, now every single person that you share the gospel with, don't just try to convert them as, as Brother Sam uh, brought up uh, just the other week. Where's Sam Lewis? He brought up a really great little devotion on our men's WhatsApp along this point, that we're not called just to make converts but disciples. That we teach them to do what the disciples were taught to do. That we all have this gospel commission. The God who saves us wants us to share him with the world. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Think about the gospel you believe, because maybe let me switch that. Think about how you share or don't share the gospel that you claim has saved you. And this is not a, this is not a guilt exercise, okay? I know that you guys are preparing for that. Oh, man, John's going to make us feel bad again. This is not a guilt exercise. This is for us to get clarity about the gospel we believe. If you're afraid to ever tell anybody that you believe in Jesus, what does that say about the gospel you believe? If you feel powerless to share the gospel, do we actually believe that Jesus' Jesus' words when he says, I'm with you to the end of the age? How is Jesus with us? By his Holy Spirit, right? Do we really believe that? This is why the Holy Spirit was sent, so we'd have power to be witnesses. If, if you share a gospel that is all about, hey, get it right, buddy. You're a sinner and you're a wretch and you're doomed to hell. All of which is true, by the way. But if that is the message you preach, what do you believe about the gospel? As I asked a young aunt one time who grew up in church, what do you think the cross is about? And he goes, I don't know, to make us feel guilty? No. Jesus came to show us, to prove to us just how merciful, compassionate, and able God is to seek and save those that are lost. Do you believe that? If you don't share the gospel with anybody but the person who's completely unchurched, do you believe that you still need the gospel? Because you never outgrow the gospel, man. The gospel, the truth about Jesus seeking and saving the lost, is not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. It's not the beginning bits. It's all of it. The Holy Spirit is working in our lives constantly to tell us how to live out this truth of Jesus coming to seek and save the lost. See, my point is this. Listen, the gospel we believe is the gospel we share or don't share. It's not that sharing the gospel, fulfilling the Great Commission earn salvation, or even keep salvation. But it shows what we believe about salvation. Has Jesus come to us, sought us out, saved us? Is he changing us to where we in our hearts want to be changed? Because that's the gospel that we're called to share. 
So what happens? He gives these rewards to these first two guys. What happens in verse 20? Here's where it gets a little bit heavy. And then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And so the king says to this, this servant, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not uh, deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and it might come in, it might have collected it with interest? Now this is where we, we want to be careful about how we push the parable. Because Jesus is not saying, I'm like the king, a severe man. Jesus doesn't reap what he didn't sow. Jesus, every good thing in this world, Jesus has sown. As we, we heard read this morning, he's the creator of all things. He's the redeemer of all things. So any good that we reap is because he's sown. But what he is saying here, listen, and the reason he's given this parable, listen, it's important to recognize this, is that he's, he's wanting those that are listening to say, listen, in this time between my first coming and my second coming, which you aren't getting yet, but I got things for you to do. I'm going to take this gospel that you've just seen demonstrated in Zacchaeus' life. I want you to take this gospel and I want you to give it away to anyone who will listen. Because I'm the kind of savior that is seeking to save the lost, no matter how wicked, wretched, or unwanted they are. This is what I'm calling you to do. And so when the, when the king says to this servant in the parable, you knew what kind of king I was, therefore you're condemned by your own words. This is what's so scary about this. Do you know that Jesus is the kind of savior that wants to seek and save the lost, then why are you hiding the gospel in a handkerchief? It gets more sobering. In verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And he said to him, listen, Lord, he has 10 minas. But Jesus says, I tell you, and here's the thing about verse 26, I should say, we're not sure if this is Jesus speaking or this is the king. It's probably the king in the parable, but this is what the king says. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given, and, and, but the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and solder them before me. There's two interpretations of this. Some people say, so Jesus is saying you're going to just lose your reward if you don't ever share the gospel, but you'll still be saved. The other interpretation is Jesus is saying if you've never shared, if you're unwilling to share the gospel, actually are you saved? So the thing that you possess intellectually, do you actually possess it eternally? Has it had that transformative work in you? Because if it hasn't, it's going to be taken away. By far, the scariest verses in the scriptures are when Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not uh, cast out demons in your name? Did we not do these things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, again, this is not me trying to scare you. But it is me trying to sober you 
to respond to the Jesus who's seeking you. Remember we talked about Jesus inviting himself into Zacchaeus' house? Listen to this. This is the glorified Jesus, not just the resurrected Jesus, but after Jesus is, is, has gone to be uh, with the Father, he's ascended to heaven, he shows up in a vision to John on the Isle of Patmos, and he gives the, the revelation, the last book of the New Testament. And here's what he says to the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, whom he had nothing good to say. He says, those, of whom, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Think about this. The same Jesus who walked this earth, who invited himself to, to Zacchaeus' house, that same Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, even if you are like the Laodiceans. If you are lukewarm, yeah, I profess Jesus, but I do what I want. Yeah, I profess Jesus, I don't need anything else. I profess Jesus and pay the holy guy to go preach the gospel to people. I don't really need to do that. If you are that, you are like the Laodiceans. You are what we used to call in the, in the first church that I, uh, I was saved in, which is kind of a Pentecostal church. We used to say, you're a spewer. He's going to spew you out of his mouth. Pretty harsh. But even to us who have been spewers, Jesus says, I'm knocking. Open the door. So here's a chance to respond. I want you to be honest before God. Have you responded to Jesus' invitation to save you? you responded when he says hurry and climb down have you hurried and climbed down with joy and say Lord I'm here I'm climbing off my high view and humbling myself before you and say here I am save me H have you responded to him and that you're, you're you sense the change of I want to be different listen maybe you're feeling like but I'm not very different I haven't really changed the way I'm supposed to change do you want to change do you want to be changed? That's a good evidence that God's working in you. Do you want to be changed? Have you responded to the knocking? And then really practically, before I pray, whose door can you knock on this week? I'm not talking about going door to door in your neighborhood, though there's nothing wrong with that, but if you've never met your neighbors before and you knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here to tell you about Jesus, it might not go so well, just saying. Bring some cookies or something. Maybe not. With COVID, you probably don't want to bring food, but you know what I'm saying. But seriously, seriously, if you, like Zacchaeus, know that Jesus has sought you and saved you, who do you want to tell about that? Maybe there's just someone in your, in Freshers Week, or maybe there's someone at your work, and you just kind of drop a hint that you went to church on Sunday. It comes up in conversation, and they, if they bite and say, whoa, I didn't know you were a churchgoer, yeah, I'd love to tell you my story someday. Then at that point you panic, because I've never done this before, I don't know how to tell my story. That's all right, we can help you, don't worry. But seriously, th this news is too good to keep to ourselves. 
Amen? Not very enthusiastic. Amen? <laughs> Folks, Jesus came to save, to seek and save the lost. If he saved you, then partner with him by the power of his Holy Spirit to seek and save the lost. Amen? So let's all pray. Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, hasn't been found by you, Lord. I, I really do believe you've brought them here this morning for a reason. I pray, Lord, that they would, even if the tree they've been hanging out with is, is church, they feel like they've climbed within the tree, they're in church, they're seeing Jesus, but they've never been found. Lord, I pray that they would hear your still voice speak to them and they'd respond in faith. Father, may today be the day of salvation for them. And Father, I pray for the rest of us who, who do know you. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, Lord, not for just seeking us once when we were lost, but how you continue to seek us when we wander, how you seek us daily. We hear like the psalmist hears, when you said, seek my face, my face, my, my, I said, Lord, your face I will seek. Lord, you do that with us. You seek us daily, Lord, and we want to seek you in return. We want to love you in return. And as we're just in a state of prayer, who comes to your mind that needs to know Jesus? Who pops in your head? Who needs to know Jesus that you know? Pray for them right now. Father, we just lift up all these people that you've brought to our minds and we ask God, would you seek after them and would you use us to, to demonstrate your gospel and proclaim your gospel? And I pray for those who, who maybe cried out to you this morning and said, Lord, I want to be found, save me. Oh Lord, may they, they have that joy of being found. May they have the courage to tell somebody what, what's happened. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a family that encourages each other in the gospel, reminds each other of that you're still the seeking and saving God you've always been. Bless our time of fellowship right now. Thank you for loving us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.